Welcome. You're listening to Perspectives by the Economist Intelligence Unit, and I'm your host, Chris Clegg, Global Editorial Lead for Trade and Globalization with the EIU and a Managing Editor in Asia. In today's podcast, we'll be speaking with Dr. Steve Bennett, a Director of the Global Government Practice with SAS. This episode of Perspectives by the Economist Intelligence Unit is supported by SAS, a global provider of data and analytics software and services that help to turn data into intelligence. Okay, well, with that all being said, we'll welcome Dr. Steve Bennett, Director of the Global Government Practice from SAS to today's podcast. Dr. Bennett, Steve, thank you for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure. It's great to be here. So, Steve, one of the issues that we talk about in this edition of the Global Business Barometer is where countries are in a framework on the survive, adapt, recover phase of dealing with a crisis. The responses we got from the people that were the executives that we surveyed was that it looks like we're still very much in the survival phase with some companies starting to adapt to a new normal. In your dealing with SaaS clients, where do you think companies are in the most part on this sort of framework? You know, I think that everybody is for the most part still in the survive phase, as, as, you, as you mentioned. We're in the middle of this kind of once in a century sort of event. And, you know, the last time we had something like this at the beginning of the 20th century, business and technology looked a lot different. So there really isn't much of a touchstone to refer to, 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 to even figure out with 100% certainty where we are in that spectrum. You know, I think, like you said, most people are in the survive phase, but there are, looking at that survey data you mentioned from the barometer, some glimpses of positive adaptation, you know, companies reporting that they are adapting and changing faster than they have before. So some measures of agility starting to show up. But, but yes, I think most people are still very much in the survive mode. Yeah, and I think another question that we sort of ask in the survey in terms of the length of time it will take to recover from this, at least from an economic and business perspective, but given your background, how long do you think it will take from sort of a medical or epidemiological perspective? We're six months in now. We're not entirely sure when a vaccine is going to be developed and how long it's going to take to distribute that. So in your experience, What's the time frame or the window we can for reasonable explanations or expectations for the recovery to take place? It's a tough question. My last job before coming to SAS about five years ago was as the director of national biosurveillance for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. So, you know, when I was in government, my job was to track and monitor, you know, outbreaks and pandemics just like this one. You know, things like Ebola or SARS or MERS coronavirus. You know the last coronavirus outbreak that we had globally. And it's difficult, again, because we haven't seen this particular virus before. We haven't seen a pandemic like this, you know, with this sort of impact in about a a century. Mm. But, you know, relying on a vaccine can be a tough thing. I think it's sort of a multi-pronged strategy. Never before have we seen the life science community collaborating all together. You know, you hear about this race to a vaccine in the news, and scientists don't view it as a competitive race. Everyone is just trying to collaborate together. So, you know, I'm optimistic that we will that we will hopefully get a vaccine faster than we have before, but it it still takes a while. I think prior to this, you know, about five years is about the you know the average for the amount of time it takes to get to a vaccine. So 
we all expect to go faster than that, but no one can predict the future. We're not sure you know, how the clinical trials are going to go. So in addition to the vaccine, there's a lot of work on treatment as well, so that if people do get it, how can we have improved treatments for improved outcomes? And you know, there's a lot of, lot of different pieces to that. And then, of course, the, the public policy and public health aspects of that. As we learn more about how the virus spreads, we can better tailor public policy decisions to get it just right where we're limiting spread but not damaging the economy more than we need to. So just to go back to something you just mentioned, the the fastest a vaccine up until this point for any sort of major disease has been developed has been around five years. Is that right? Yeah, it takes a long time. Historically, you know, if you look at the polio vaccine or you look at the Ebola vaccine recently, it just takes years. Now, part of that has been there hasn't been the sort of global effort like there is for COVID, but right. it takes a while historically, yes. Right. So we're something to be developed by the fall, which is the best case scenario, like the best we can possibly hope for. But the more realistic scenario is at the fastest possible speed is sometime next year, right? That would be a quarter of the time it's taken for development of vaccines in the past, right? Yeah. You know, again, we can't, no one predicts the future, but that, you know, I think we would be in very good shape if we had a successful vaccine candidate in the fall and then can move that into production. And, you know, the production of the vaccine comes out in phases as well in waves. And so, you you know, when you get your initial production, you know, you would vaccinate, you know, healthcare workers, of course, first. Right. And then vulnerable populations, you know, immunosuppressed and compromised folks and, you know, people in elderly care facilities and, and similar sorts of places where we have high vulnerability. So I think even when you get initial batches and doses of the vaccine out, you'll start to see big impacts in reduced loss of life. Right. So that's, Another point to touch on, right? So there's the development of the vaccine, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, the, in this, the sort of basic stages here, there's the development and the discovery of the vaccine, and then there's the production and the distribution. So even if the development of the vaccine is you know, faster than we've ever seen in history, it's still going to take a long time to ramp up production and to ensure distribution around the world, right? That's right. Yep, that takes time. But I know there are lots of folks working on that problem in parallel. So hopefully we will see, you know, we're all optimistic that we see, uh, we see things go very quickly once we've got a good vaccine in place. Until that happens, and, and this, this goes back again to something we've, we talked about in the introduction, is the adaptations that companies are undertaking to get them through this period, right? Until, until there's a vaccine, until it's produced and, di- and distributed widely. So working with clients, what are you seeing in terms of the adaptations that they're making? And, you know, more interestingly, what sort of adaptations do you think are going to be not just temporary, but permanent if and when the vaccine is developed and distributed? You know, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I think they're probably the biggest summary statement there is that we see digital transformation occurring really at an unprecedented pace, both for businesses and for governments. And that's because the need to rapidly adapt and change operational agility, there's never been pressure to do that faster than what we've seen in the last four months for businesses and governments either to survive or to, or to thrive in, in a new environment. Mm. And you know, we were talking with a particular benefits agency and a government, I can't tell you which one, yep. but like many government agencies around the world, they had a, a seven-year plan for digital transformation. They want to become more citizen-focused. They want to have an app where citizens can very easily connect in and uh, understand their benefits and be very citizen-focused, citizen-centric, and then have all the back-end systems 
ready to do that in a seamless way. And that a seven-year plan to do that. And we were talking with them, you know, after kind of COVID came out and the government in that country had uh, put out a whole bunch of stimulus funding to support people in the country. And this agency was charged with getting those benefits out to people quickly. And they said, they said, hey, we've, we've had to run this seven-year digital transformation plan in about four days. <laughs> and so that, that's really, maybe that's an extreme version of what we're hearing, but we're really hearing that same sentiment everywhere that people are seeing the need for digital transformation and much, much faster than they probably would have, than they would have planned. And that comes out in the data as well in the Global Business Barometer Survey, right? You see, there's a lot of people doing kind of obvious things as a result of this pandemic, like reducing travel costs, operational costs, what you would expect in a crisis. But interestingly, digital transformation measures were a big part of companies' near-term way forward, things like improving digital customer experience, increasing automation, things like that. So you know, we kind of see it in its SaaS, but we also certainly see it more broadly in your data. Right. Well, it, it's interesting because these are things that were beneficial and could have been done quickly independent of a global pandemic, but the COVID outbreak has sort of focused thinking and digital transformation on a lot of these areas. So it is an interesting outcome. It's unfortunate that it took this for that to happen, but it does seem, at least by the survey results and your experience with customers, that it is that it is actually happening. I want to turn a little bit to adaptation and recovery. Well, and I suppose it's all three, survival as well as what lessons can we take from past crises to help guide us through this one? Obviously, it's only been a little over 10 years since the global financial crisis, and that was global in nature. There was, and I'm based in Japan, there was the March 11 triple disaster, and there have been other natural disasters since then. What sort of lessons or, or learnings do you think that are applicable to what we're going through today? You know, there's a lot we can learn. I mean, even my, my personal story, I mentioned I, I worked in the uh, Department of Homeland Security. I, I spent about 12 years there. I got into government. I'm a scientist by training, a, a life scientist. And I got into government because of September 11th. And, you know, with my background in life science and computational sort of techniques, my passions inside of government has been how we can help governments around the world and businesses more broadly take their data and put it to work for the citizens or the customers that they that they serve. and you know, one of the things that, that the United States government saw after September 11th was a lot of missed opportunities to find connections and data that could have pointed towards something coming. So you could yeah. have taken early action. And so I think one of the things that we've learned in lots of different sorts of crises, you could take the global financial crisis 10 years ago as well, is that there are there's a lot of signals for action in data mm. if you're willing to look and listen. So making the most of your data through analytics and, you know, now all of the, the buzzwords like artificial intelligence and the like, sure. putting those things to work to interrogate your data can give you signals when things are starting to become out of the ordinary so that you can take early action. So that's one of the lesson that I think is durable, that there's a lot of power in drawing insights from, from data. Right. Can I ask you to expand that a little bit? Sure. Based on what we're going through right now with COVID. So... What were the signals that were missed this time around, right? I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a doctor or a scientist in the way that you are, but I have studied economics and I, I'm familiar with, you know, the signals that, you know, there are a handful of people or more saw in the lead up to the global financial crisis in 2008 or 2009. Was there anything similar this time around? Were there some voices 
out there said this is going to be more serious than people are taking it right now. And if that's the case, then why didn't we act? Well, that's a complicated question, and uh, uh, it's the right question, uh, but a complicated one. And there, yeah. there's a, a piece of this that has to do with with human nature, and that is, you know, nobody ever wants to believe that this is the one that's going to be the once in a century thing. Yeah. You think that, well, you know, this will be like the other ones; it'll sort of fizzle out, like you know, Ebola in West Africa a couple of years ago, or like you know, like the MERS coronavirus, or like SARS. You know, we kind of watch it on the news for a while, and it's always happening somewhere else, and it never really kind of gets to us, right? So there's a little bit of human nature there. Um, even though we've been watching, you know, governments have been watching for a pandemic like this for, for a long time. Yeah. So I think one of the lessons learned is a little bit about how we tolerate and think about risk. And, you know, Chris, as an economist, there are all kinds of behavioral economics theories, you know, yeah. uh, Kahneman and Tversky, you know, thinking fast and slow and yeah. all those sorts of great books that are on the market these days exactly. that kind of talk about how we, we make decisions based on risk in different ways. And so um, kind of training ourselves to be a little bit more analytical and avoid some of the ways that we cognitively process risk can be helpful to us. But in terms of missed signals, there's lots of things that we can be doing, and governments are, are, are doing some of this. There are places in the world where there might be increased probability of diseases jumping from animals to humans, mm -hmm. right? Places where there's large interactions between wildlife or animals and markets and humans, and places where you might see these things start to pop up. And so we've known about that. And there are projects around the world that are using artificial intelligence to map the world in terms of where those hotspots are most likely to kind of pop up. And if you listen to those hotspots, those signals, you can't prevent the disease from occurring. We couldn't have prevented this, I don't think. Mm. But we certainly could have been anticipating where it might happen, pre-positioning you know, medical and surveillance capabilities medically so that we are able to respond more quickly. I mean, in something like this, speed saves lives. So the more quickly you can pull your data together and then act, the better chance you have of certainly slowing it, if not, you know, preventing it from spreading into a pandemic globally. Right. Just to expand on that a little bit, do you think that, or would you agree with the statement that the Western world, let's say North America and Europe were lulled into a false sense of security based on the outcomes of Ebola and SARS and MERS and all of these viruses or outbreaks that never really made it to Europe or the US. So there was a false sense of security. This is not going to happen here this time when it very much did. You know, I think the public health and science communities probably would not have fallen into that trap. Yeah. I think they were kind of looking at the data, but, you know, certainly the rest of us and maybe some of some political leaders would think, well, you know, am, am I really going to shut down travel, shut down my economy? Am I really going to you know, create this big self-inflicted wound mm -hmm. on my country or on my community when most likely this thing's going to blow over like all the other ones, right? That's kind of the thinking in the back of your head. And that thinking is fine unless it really is the one that is the once in a century thing, yeah. right? And you, you can't know that up front. So you have to make your decisions based on objective criteria without knowing what that outcome is going to be. And that's a hard thing for anybody to do, particularly in a, you know, democratically elected yeah. sort of government. Well, and there are indeed, there are still voices today, six months in and hundreds of thousands of deaths around the world who are saying this is not really any worse than the seasonal flu. And it's something that we'll get through it. It seems worse. There's being exaggerated. How would you counter or what, how would you respond to those assertions? I kind of see where they're coming from, right? That the, um, the, the fatality rate for this is, you know, much lower than SARS or other, other things that we've seen more recently. It's, 
depending on how old you are and, and your, you know, some of your underlying medical conditions, the fatality rate can be quite low. Yep. But we are up, you know, in the United States, we're up, you know, well, well over 100,000 deaths. And, uh, you know, we've still got a long way to go till the vaccine. So that's certainly worse than a bad flu year for us. In the United States, a bad flu year is, you know, maybe 60, 70, 80, you know, maybe 90,000 deaths in the U.S. And, and we're, we're already well north of that. So I, I kind of would reject that idea that it's analogous to a bad flu year. Right. But I would say we do have to keep risks in perspective, right? And, and here's what I mean by that. If you look at the number of people going in for routine cancer screenings, it's fallen to very, very low levels because nobody wants to go anywhere near a hospital. Yep. If you look at people going in for standard treatment for their cancer, they're missing their, you know, their radiation and chemotherapy appointments. And you know, if I'm a policymaker, I'm looking at all of the signals and I want to make sure that I'm not trading off a reduced fatality rate from COVID in exchange for a much higher fatality rate from untreated cancer in six to 18 months. Yeah, I think that that's an excellent point, Steve. And given that we're discussing data and you're a very data-driven SaaS is a very data-driven company, I've heard that argument before. How do you estimate the secondary or tertiary impacts of COVID on those sorts of fatalities, right? We can estimate those quite well. I mean, yeah. we have a sense from, you know, clinicians you know, what fraction of these patients are not coming in for their treatments? You know, how many times do you see people come in with skin cancer and now you're not, they're not coming into the dermatologist? Yeah. We can actually calculate all of that right now. We know those numbers, but the reality is that people accept a death differently depending on what the cause of the death is, mm-hmm. right? You know, um, again, I know the numbers best for, for my country, the United States. We have about 40,000 automobile accidents per year, maybe 35,000 now, um, but, but quite a large number of automobile accident fatalities every year. I mean, it's terrible, right? We, we certainly don't love to hear about people losing their lives in a car accident, mm. but we're not really reorganizing all of government over 35,000 deaths per year. Yeah. If you look back to the event I mentioned a minute ago that kind of got me into government, we lost 3,000 lives due to terrorism. Yeah. Now, horrible. I'm not minimizing that at all. It's why I got into government. Sure. But we reorganized all of government. We, re- we, you know, we went to fight a war. I mean, we, we did a whole bunch of things because we valued those loss of lives differently than we do things like car accidents, flu, cancer, heart disease, et cetera. So policymakers know this, right? They know that public will tolerate different sorts of risks differently. And the media has a lot to do with this as well. I mean, how we report on an infectious disease has a lot to do with how people kind of internalize that. Is this a big deal? Is this not a big deal? What does all of this mean? Given all of that, and there is, it's been the last couple of years, but this has been going around for a while, is misinformation, disinformation, skepticism about what's being reported by the media, what constitutes fact in this environment. And it seems to me that that has exacerbated the problem. And I don't know that there's a solution, but what sort of role do you think you play and data analytics play in convincing the public that, yes, this is fundamentally different than 35,000 automobile accidents a year? For us, you know, we think about analytics. The reason you do analytics, the reason you care about looking at your data is so that you can make a decision better, faster, or in a less, less expensive way. It's all about the decision making. And so ultimately, we've kind of touched all around this, Chris, actually, you know, Humans have all of these cognitive biases in how they make decisions, yeah. right? We've touched on a lot of them, right? So one of the really powerful things that data and analytics will do for you is give you some objective evidence upon which you can base a decision. It helps you get ahead or get around 
some of your own cognitive biases that we all have as humans in the way that we make decisions. And so for us, we see that the data and the analytics that kind of produce insights from that data are so important to make decisions. I mean, now more than ever, particularly when you're in a crisis and you can't trust your gut. I mean, a lot of the times what we will hear from people is, well, I don't need all this fancy analytics. I've been doing my job for 40 years. <laughs> I'm just going to do it the way I've always done it. And, and often, frankly, that, that, can, some, that can work. Yeah. But when you have a situation you've never seen before, you better be looking for some evidence to help you make the best decision you can. And you can still be wrong, right? We're all in a brave new world. But you know, if I were a senior policymaker, I'd rather have all that evidence at my fingertips rather than having to guess. Yeah, I mean, that goes back to Kahneman's thinking fast and slow thesis, right? Right. Okay, well, just to switch gears here a little bit and maybe go back to something we originally started discussing is how long to recovery? If I put you on the spot, how long do you think it is? And we're not going to hold you to this a year or two from now, but if you were forced to say how long to a recovery, and I guess the second question is, you know, in terms of adaptation, things are changing. What things might return back to normal and what things are going to be permanently different as a result of the pandemic? I get to kind of dust off the crystal ball, I guess. <laughs> um, well, you know, I'm an optimist. I think, you know, and I'm not an economist, but, I, you know, I've, I view the, the, the economic fundamentals, you know, I think are still fairly strong. I mean, just anecdotally watching what's going on in my community, in our country, and, and I think globally, I think some of the fundamentals are still there. So I'm, I'm optimistic. And I think even that global business barometer data might bear some of this out. Yeah. That I think within a year, I don't think it's going to be this rapid V-shaped recovery that, you know, we're all sort of hoping for. But mm. I think we'll have a good chance of getting back to growth within the year. I think the fundamentals economically are still there. So I'm optimistic that way. In terms of your, your kind of second question there about, you know, what with the adaptations and what, what will stick and what, and what won't, I think there's going to be some changes in how we do global and international business. I think travel will look a lot different. And that also is something actually that seemed, seemed to come out in, in the Economist survey data yep. as well. So I'm not sure what global business is going to look like. You know, we're all used to working in Zoom and Microsoft Teams and all of that. And, you know, maybe that sticks a little more. And and the way that we work with our colleagues internationally might change a little bit when we come out of this. That might be different. Yeah, absolutely, Steve. I want to bring this back to something that you said in terms of why you joined the government, right? It's 9-11, right? The terrorist attack in New York and D.C. And that changed travel. I think the near-term effect on travel was much less than what we're seeing with COVID, but it did, it affected travel globally, yes. right? Do you see any parallels there in terms of how it's going to change the way that, that we travel? You know, I, I think there are some parallels to what we saw after September 11th. I mean, after that, you, you know, people were nervous getting on a plane because of a risk to their, well, frankly, risk to their health. Yeah. And the same thing's true here. You know, do I really want to be in an aluminum tube, <laughs> you know, for eight hours flying across the ocean, sitting next to somebody who may be coughing, right? I mean, I think a lot of those risks might persist for a while and people's perception of them. And so it might just change our willingness to to do that. And then on the other side, you know, we're being forced to explore the other side of that. What does electronic meetings look like and how do we connect globally? And maybe we are finding that it's sufficient to get business done in many cases. And I don't need to fly over to uh, close that deal. I can get it done over a Zoom meeting. Yep. That's a terrific point. I mean, I put in 150, 200,000 miles a year for the last couple of years, and it's going to go down to zero this year, but it doesn't fundamentally change the ability of me to conduct business. I mean, you and I, 
maybe eight months ago would have met in person to do this podcast, and now we're doing it online. Uh, and there are, there are yep. certain other examples of that. Okay, so travel is definitely one, and that, discuss that a little bit in the report, and especially in the context of the results of the survey. Uh, are there any other areas where you think that the ways of working and living are going to be just fundamentally altered going forward? I do. I think digital transformation will be very sticky. You know, some of the things that we talked about earlier, you know, customer, digital customer experience and automation. So as some things that have moved online, a little bit more of that might stay online. You might think about retail and other industries related to that. So I think digital transformation will be something that it was top of mind for companies and government before this pandemic. I think it's going to be even more so afterwards as we see increased reliance on consumer activity and engagement in digital and online channels. Mm So I think that's going to stick in terms of the way that we work. You know, I think the great work from home experiment, you know, the jury is out on all of those productivity measures and such. And I think we'll see you know, how different companies and industries kind of score how they did as they worked from home. But I think read recently, there's one bank who just I think the first major bank said now going forward, a number of their positions can be fully work from home going mm-hmm. forward, even their new hires after the pandemic. So we're seeing some little glimpses like that in news reporting that some some industries like banking and others are saying, hey, you know what, this worked just fine. I'll let people work from wherever they want as long as they've got a good internet connection yeah. and uh, we really don't care where you live. There are a lot of implications for that that we don't necessarily need to get into on this podcast, but that's going to have a massive impact on real estate prices, especially in major cities like Tokyo, where I'm based less people need to actually work physically in offices. But I do want to get into something that you mentioned, the difference between, or maybe there's not a difference, between companies and government. You're the director of the global government practice at SAS. What are you seeing in terms of the speed of digital transformation with governments? Because I think if you look at it sort of traditionally, governments are, with the exception of Singapore and a few others, are viewed as lumbering giants, or to put it another way, a a large ocean-going ship that is very difficult to change or turn. Has this forced them, governments, to move faster, to turn faster than than they might have otherwise in terms of digital transformation? Absolutely. I mean, unquestionably, yes. You know, most governments, particularly if they are democracies, they are designed to move slowly. They're built that way on purpose, so that they don't kind of lurch hither and yon with every sort of change, a lot of people in a democracy usually have to line up in agreement on something to make any kind of major change. Multiple parts of the government have to agree at the same time. That's rare. And so government by design tends to move pretty slowly. So this has been a big exception to that, of course, because there's been a massive need to move quickly. So government has, I think, compared to pre-pandemic, they've probably had the biggest delta if you compare where they were before COVID Mm. and where they are now. They've had to do things very, very fast. If you, like I said, if you look at, uh, let's just take uh, economic stimulus, right? If you look at Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, HMRC in the UK, yep. they basically, you know, the government said, okay, we want to cover salaries for people who are furloughed up to 80%, you know, given some other sort of criteria and qualifications. And they basically then turned to HMRC and said, okay, we want you guys to run the tax system in reverse. And you have like a few weeks to do that. Hmm. So those sorts of things are unprecedented. But I will say, one of the things about that story and some of the great work done at HMRC, the reason they were able to do that is because they had built a culture of data and analytics for many, many years. And so it was a little bit easier for them to do that because they're used to looking at their data to kind of do things like that more quickly. So, you know, luck favors the prepared, I guess, as they say. 
But even more broadly than that, government has, has seen a, a really big change in terms of the speed of having to change the way they do business, probably more than a lot of other industries since, you know, government and healthcare are on the front lines for having to respond to this thing. Yeah, well, I'll put on my citizen hat for the moment rather than my journalistic or analytical hat is HMRC is a very good example. And there are other examples of that around the world. And uh, as a citizen, you want to say, well, you could have done this very, very easily before the pandemic, but you just hadn't done it. So it took something like a global pandemic to focus your thinking, I guess, is, is, a, is a way to, to put it. But the government's had the capability to do this even before COVID-19, right? Yeah, you know, that, that example I gave you a minute ago, the benefits agency, you know, why was their digital transformation plan seven years? Yep. That comes down to balancing other democratic priorities, right? I mean, you have a fixed budget and the citizens get a say in where their priorities are. And, you know, maybe the citizens aren't really excited about digital transformation in this agency until they really need their benefits quickly in a pandemic, of course, right? Yeah. Okay. All we've talked about over the last 30 minutes, what's your outlook for the next 6, 12, 18, 24 months? This is something we've asked our survey respondents, and you've kind of looked into your crystal ball a little bit up to this point, but I'm going to ask you to do that again to bring things to a close here. How do you see this unfolding over the next 6, 12, 18 months? As I mentioned, I'm an optimist. You know, I think the, again, I'm not an economist, but I feel like the fundamentals are largely pretty good for where we are economically. I don't know that we'll get there in six months. I think we've got a long haul ahead of us for the rest of calendar year 2020, both in terms of the public health issues and then through the economic issues connected to that. But I think by 12 to 18 months from now, um, I would expect us, I think, to be in a much better position economically. I think that we are going to be you know, back into growth within the year. And I think we will, again, being optimistic, I think that uh, by this time next year, uh, we should expect to have a vaccine. That's that's optimistic. But again, with the global collaboration in life science, like we've never seen it before, I feel like scientists everywhere are stepping up. So I, I'm optimistic. I think that not in six months, but 12 months, I think we're going to be in a much better place with respect to economic growth and not coincidentally, uh, also on the public health response side for this as well. Well, I think on that cheering note, which I'm happy to hear, I think we can wind this up. Thanks for taking the time, Steve. My pleasure, Chris. I enjoyed it as well. So that's it for this latest episode on the Global Business Barometer. Thank you to Dr. Steve Bennett again for joining us on the podcast today. And thanks again to SAS for its support of these first early episodes of the Perspective series. Again, the full barometer results can be found at globalbusinessbarometer.economist.com. And if you have any feedback or questions, you can email us at asiaperspectives@economist.com. And please don't forget to subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future episodes of the podcast. Thank you again for listening and take care.